We're about helping people find and follow Jesus. If you're wondering what Crosspoint Baptist Church is about, it's about helping people find and follow Jesus. And you're wondering, why do I say that every week? Because I really mean it. And we have short-term memories, and we have to be reminded of this all the time, that that is our very reason for our existence, to help people come to know Jesus as their Savior, Lord, and help to live their life for him. We're going to continue in our series. We've been calling this series, I Am Coming Soon. And I'm calling it that because that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about how Jesus, he is the great I Am. He is coming soon. So if you brought your Bibles, open to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29 is where we'll be this morning. A, a sermon I'm calling Thyra Tyra, the church of Jezebel. So we're looking at the whole book of Revelation, but really we're drilling down very minutely on the seven churches that are, that are mentioned by name in, in, in this book. And I'm, we need to keep in mind that these are real churches. They really existed. They, they had pastors, and they met for the, the reading of God's word and worship, and they were located in Asia Minor. And these were not spiritual churches. They were not allegories to something else. They, they were real congregation like ours. And each week, we're, we're studying what Jesus said about these seven different churches, and we're asking ourselves a very penetrating question. Are we like this church? Are we like that church? Or are we bits and pieces of, of the different churches? I want to remind you of the churches we've already studied. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about the church in Ephesus. How Jesus said about Ephesus, how they were doctrinally sound, they were theologically accurate, but they lost their first love. They loved Jesus, they loved studying the Bible, but they didn't love lost people. And so what they did is they withdrew from the world, they got into the little holy huddle, and thus they had no impact for the kingdom of God. The second church that Jesus wrote was the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church. Like Ephesus, they were doctrinally sound. But they were Jesus' persecuted church. We should ask why. Well, the reason why is because they were theologically sound, and they didn't compromise what they believed, but at the same time, they still loved lost people. They loved lost people that didn't love Jesus, and because of that, they were persecuted for their love. And then last week, we, church, we, we studied the church in Pergama. Pergama is the compromising church. They love Jesus, but the problem is they love the world too. And they were willing to compromise with the world and say some things are okay that Jesus clearly said are not okay. And so what happened is in Pergama, the, the, the world kind of moved into a sense, into the church, and the world was running the show And if the world is running the show, then the church will have no impact for the kingdom of God. And today we're studying the fourth church that's mentioned by Jesus, and that's the church of Thyatira. It was when Paul was on his second mission trip, he he goes to a city named Philippi, and there he meets a lady named Lydia who's from Thyatira. Read about it. It's in Acts 16, verse 14. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you judge me faithful to the Lord, come to my house, and she prevailed upon us. So most Bible scholars suggest that Lydia went back to Thyatira. Her and her family founded the church there in that city. But follow the timeline. Paul essentially shares the gospel with Lydia around 50 AD. 
And then fast forward to when Jesus gives the vision to John, the book of Revelation. That's around 90 AD. So by the time the church of Thyatira is founded to the part when, when Jesus tells how far they fall, and we're going to study that in a minute, is only 40 years. My point is a church can go from being founded to utter doing nothing for the kingdom of God in a mere 40 years. How can it get so wrong so fast? And we're going to come to know, talk about that in a minute. It helps to know that the city of Thyatira is really known for its clothing. Probably Lydia played a huge role in that. It was, think of a city with like a huge garment district. It, it was a very small city, but an incredibly wealthy city. It was located 40 miles southeast of Pergama that we talked about a little bit ago. And it's located on the Lycus River. The city of Thyatira, it's situated in between two valleys, so it has no natural fortification. It's a very rich agricultural area, and it has a very vibrant working class population of people there. Well, those that are in the working class in Thyatira, in order to be involved in the, in, in the commerce of that city, you had to belong to a trade guild. These trade guilds, think of like a family business, a, uh, a union labor thing, and a, a cult, all mixed into one. Well, the main city that is worshipped in Thyatira was Apollo. Apollo is the Greek sun god. Well, in order to have a job, in order to have a business in the city, you had to be a member of one of those trade guilds. Well, each guild had its own deity. Most of them worshipped Apollo, but there was a a number of different deities you you could worship in these trade guilds. Well, in order to participate in the trade guilds, you had to attend something that's called a love feast. Well, at these love feasts, what was going to happen is you're going to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols and commit all sorts of sexual acts. That's part of the worship. Think of it like a drunken party. And you have to go to this drunken party to be employed. And you knew there was going to be some shady stuff going down at the party. And if you weren't at the party, then you're not going to get to work on Monday. That's how it works. Or no one's going to frequent your family business. So here's the dilemma for the believers in Thyatira, to engage or not engage. Do we engage and compromise our beliefs, or do we stay true to Jesus and forfeit our jobs? If we, if we stay true to Jesus, then our family business is in danger of closing. We could be socially ostracized, marginalized in the city. And eventually what will happen is the people of the city will persecute the believers for remaining true to Jesus like the believers in Smyrna were. So what do you do? We're going to find out in just a minute what the believers in Thyatira did. But out of the seven churches, Jesus writes the longest and most difficult letter to the church in Thyatira. Remember Ephesus? Ephesus was loyal, but they lacked love. Smyrna was loyal and loving to the bitter end, and that's why they were persecuted. Pergama was the compromising church. But we're going to find out that Jesus, we found out that Jesus said that all those churches were true to the faith. Next week, we're going to read about Sardis. Sardis is the dead church. And Philadelphia, we're going to find out, is the best church. Laodicea is the church that makes Jesus want to puke. But here at Thyatira, they're the church where false teaching is running the show. Thyatira seemingly has it all together on the outside, but on the inside, they're terribly corrupt. And Jesus confronts his church with what he knows is going on. Read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one. Believers cannot use their occupation as an excuse for unauthentic Christianity. Maybe you read that and you're like, how do you get that from verse 18? We'll discuss that in a minute. But I know I've said this in previous messages, but Jesus knows what goes on in his church. And I mention that again because Jesus mentions that again. He talks about his flaming eyes, and that tells us how he sees all. The King Jesus knows all. That nothing is covered or disguised or hidden from his sight that happens in his church. There are no secrets from Jesus. Because the church on the outside can look great, but Jesus knows the truth of what happens on the inside of his church. The church at Thyatira, I bet it was growing because of all the people. I bet all the pews were filled on Sunday, but Jesus knows what's really going on inside his church. And Jesus says that his feet are, are burnished bronze. At this time, when weapons were made, typically they would make them out of bronze. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm coming to wage war against my church. It's a reference to Jesus being all-powerful, immovable, and unshakable. And he is swift to stomp out evil that is happening in his church. This is a depiction of Jesus' holiness and his purity. And Jesus here very clearly refers to himself as the son of God. This is the only time in the book of Revelation where Jesus used this title, but all through the gospels, over and over and over again, Jesus says that God is is his father. But here, very plainly, Jesus refers to himself as the son of God. So make no mistake about exactly who Jesus is. But this is what the son of God wants us to know, that he knows. He knows what happens in his church. And I mention this because there's a phenomenon that's very prevalent in the American church, specifically in the Bible belt of our country. And that is where you go to church because it's good for business. You go to church because this is the place you go to rub shoulders with other businessmen. And you get to know who's who in your city. And so you go to a church so you can make contacts and together your businesses can be more profitable. Go there, get to know them. They can know you, you can know them, and together you can make more money. But then when you do that, don't call out sin when you see it. If you see them doing something that you know is not right, you don't mention that because after all, that's bad for business. Maybe their daughter, maybe their son is involved in some sin that Jesus does not approve of. You don't call it out because that's going to hurt the business. Or maybe it's not their son or daughter, maybe it's the husband. Maybe it's the wife and they're doing something that Jesus said don't do, but you don't call it out because that's going to hurt the business. Sidebar for just a minute. When we started this this study on the book of Revelation, I'm sure everybody's real excited because we're going to be talking about bold judgments, whatever that is. We're going to be talking about a rapture and something called Armageddon. It's going to be exciting. But then here, we've been doing this for a number of weeks and all I'm talking about, we're getting up in our business. Why? Because this is important. I mean, think of the overall, how, how the book of Revelation is going to go. Revelation chapter 1, it's all about Jesus. This is who he is, and he's an awesome God, and you should fall on your feet. Just worship him because of who he is. Chapters 2 and 3 are about the church, what they got right and what they got wrong. The point is what you're getting wrong, you need to change like now because Jesus is coming back. And the church is Jesus' plan that the whole world will hear the gospel. And the church is not preaching the gospel, but then what in the world are we doing in the first place? The church is the plan so that people don't know the gospel, can hear the gospel. 
Let's go ahead and read what Thyatira got right. Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. Here's my second point. Point number two. A believer's works are important, but works aren't the only thing that are important. Jesus here, he mentions six things the church in Thyatira got right. He says, number one, I know your works. He says, I see your good deeds. Thyatira's faith is not dead because faith is expressed in works towards others. Jesus had a half-brother by the name of James that said a lot about this. James was said, faith without works is dead. Jesus says, number two, I see your love. Thyatira is the first church of the seven church that Jesus commends them for their love. Ephesus was a church that was weak in love, but Thyatira was strong in love. Jesus says, number three, I know your faith. Jesus knows this is a church with strong convictions. He says, number four, I see your service. He knows how the church is serving others within the walls of his church. He sees how they're serving people outside the church. He knows. He knows all the mission trips the church of Thyatira is taking. He knows how they're reaching out to those outside of the church that are hurting. Jesus knows. Jesus says, number five, I, see your pa- I know your patient endurance. He knows their steadfastness under pressure. He knows that the church at Thyatira, they run the church like they do their businesses. The, Thyatira, the members of the church at Thyatira are not afraid to roll up their sleeves and get to work and do the hard work to make a church successful. He knows what, they know what it takes to get it done. And Jesus says, number six, I, see, I know your latter works. Your latter works exceed the first. I mean, this church was a church that was doing more than ever before. They had even a greater commitment to their service and dedication. So they were a bunch of believers that were working hard. They were busy. They were, they were bus- their business is characterized by love and faith and perseverance. And that's good, right? They're getting it all done, right? That's a great thing. We're going to find out in a, in a minute how you can be all right, but then at the same time be terribly wrong. You're wondering how in the world, if you got those six things right, how can you still be wrong? Well, for one reason, because Jesus says so. Read Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Jesus says, but I have this against you. Stop right there. Just to pause for a minute. It, 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 this is the longest letter written to the different churches. There's two verses where Jesus gives the good. And the rest of, the, of this letter to the church of Thyatira is bad. Most of the, the letter comes after the but. You ever notice how a but undoes the good that's this said? For example, go to your wife, sweetie, that dinner last night, it was so wonderful. But, like, uh-oh, right? Baby, you look so good in that dress the other night, but... Hold on. So, dear, you fixed that thing I've been asking you to. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. But, you see how the but undoes the compliment that just came? There's a technique that's used in management called the sandwich technique. You say something good, you give the criticism, and then you say something good again. That's not what Jesus does here. Jesus tells the church what they got right, and then he drops the hammer Jesus is more like the CEO of a company. He says, hey, you did these things right. Good job. Man, I'm so happy. That, but here's what you got wrong. 
And it's a good report, keep doing that. But here's what you got wrong and you need to change it. And by change it, I mean change it like yesterday. This is what Jesus is saying. He starts with praise and encouragement and then he hammers them with criticism. And here's something that I find very interesting that Jesus commends their action, that's a good thing, but then he's gonna tell them to fix what they need to fix and fix it like now. And what they need to fix is their doctrine. Pastor Tim Keller said, quote, to say doctrine doesn't matter, only how you live matters. It's a doctrine itself. It's a doctrine of salvation by works. So here's the question. What is most important to Jesus? Behavior or beliefs? The answer is both. Both are important to Jesus. Let's read all of verse 20. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three, believers can never compromise when it comes to morality. You know, Jesus mentions this woman, Jezebel, who is a prophetess. It's very doubtful there is a woman, actually a member of the church in Thyatira, whose name is Jezebel. For one, you ever met a girl named Jezebel? I see no hands. There's a reason you've never met a girl named Jezebel. Uh, king, Saul, excuse me, king David, he was the first king of Israel. And then his son Solomon, he ruled and reigned. And then after his reign was over, the, the kingdom was broken into two. There was a civil war that broke out. There was 10 tribes to the north, became a new country, if you will, kind of, sort of. And then two, tri- two tribes became their own country to the, to the south. Well, the kings in the south, they were bad. They were terrible. But the kings in the north, they were an absolute dumpster fire. Every single one of them. They were terrible. Let's read about the worst of the worst of the, the bad kings. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. The word of God says, in the 38th year of Isaiah, the, this, Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. You see, hear how bad that is? It's terrible. More than all who came before him. Verse 31 and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, and he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who before him. So Ahab was the king of Israel for 22 years, and he was a wicked king. And if you do a study on just how wicked the kings that came before him, I mean, it's bad, terrible. So he was the worst of the worst of the bad kings and then he marries a girl named Jezebel. I mean, that's, that's terrible. She, she is the daughter of the king of Sidonians. Her daddy is a king named Uthbal. Uthbal means with Baal. Picturing uh, meeting a guy and his name is with Satan. That's bad, right? And he has a little girl, so she's very much not a Jew. And so we know this marriage is made out of political alliance to get political protection, and by the way, her name means Baal exalts. Picture meeting a little girl. Her name is All Hell Satan. 
That's, that's, that tells you what she's like. Well, anyways, he encourages the systematic killing of all the prophets of the one true God. And after all the prophets are killed off, then she ushers in these 850 false prophets, 450 of Baal and 400 to, uh, to Asher. Asher's a cohort of sorts of Baal. I mean, it's just debauchery at its worst. Well, anyways, Ahab and Jezebel, they introduce Baal worship to the nation of Israel. If you're wondering what that's like, it's, it's pagan worship mixed with, mixed with sexual immorality. And Jezebel influenced the people of God to forsake Yahweh, to leave Yahweh, quit worshiping him. And then she promoted this tolerance and involvement in, in pagan practices such as child sacrifice. She got the people of God to sacrifice their own children to Baal. And Jesus says about the worship that's going down in his church in Thyatira, he says that they're seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Last week we talked about the church in Pergamum, how they got wrong when it came to, to Balaam and how he, he got the people of God to practice syncretism. Secretism is where you take good religion and you mix it with bad religion, which is essentially bad religion. What Jezebel did is she followed right in his footsteps. The church at Thyatira, they, they, they merged biblical faith and the one true God with the worship of Satan. It's a mixture of truth and error. It's, and the result, what happens is compromised faith. It's syncretized faith. It's diluted faith. So what that is, it's a both and religion. It's God and Baal. God and Satan. It's where you love Jesus, but you support abortion. It's where you love Jesus, but at the same time you say homosexuality is, is okay. It's where you say, you know, I can love Jesus on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday I go live however I want. And Jesus says no. It's where the, uh, the, you, just, you say you love Jesus, but really Satan is running the show. Satan gets, gets to choose what's right and what's wrong. And Jesus says, it's not a both and religion, it's either or. It was on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. Master can be anything. Anything or anyone that replaces Jesus. It puts you in bondage. And, and let me ask you this question. Who's your master? Or what's your master? And before you say, oh, nothing, I love Jesus, let me ask you this. What gets more of your time or your money than Jesus? And I mentioned those two things because those are two very tangible things that we can map out and we can see what the true, the true God of our heart is. You know, if all of your time goes to you, then you are the God that you worship. If all your money goes to you, then you are the God that you worship. And I say this because I can't tell you how many times in my 13 years of pastoral ministry, I've asked somebody, hey, can you help out like this? And people say, oh, pastor, I don't have time. It's because you're the God you worship. Hey, do you think maybe you could start the tithe? Oh, I, I just can't afford it. That's because you're the God that you worship. And, and here's the complaint by, to, by the, to the church by Jesus. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. You're compromising your faith. You're allowing things that I said should never be allowed to happen in the church. So here's how this is going to go down. As long as I'm the pastor, this church will never condone abortion. It will never condone sexual sin. 
But my point is, a church can't be silent on this either. Remember the church, the, the members of Thyatira? Maybe they were practicing sexual sin. Maybe they weren't. But the truth is they were silent when the other p- members of the church were practicing this. We're not going to do that here at Crosspoint. And you can get as mad at me as you want. People leave a church all the time. It's kind of an epidemic proportion in our town. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to pray that God convicts you to repent That's the word that Jesus uses over and over and over again. Repent. Repent means do something about it. If you don't repent, there are consequences coming. Are you sure, pastor? Yeah, I'm sure because Jesus says so. What are they? Well, fortunately, Jesus tells us exactly what the consequences are. Read Revelation chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to, what's the word? Repent. But she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into a great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Here's my fourth point for us this morning. Point number four, believers cannot tolerate the things that Jesus is intolerant to. Jesus says that he has given her time to repent, but yet she refuses. That's the believers in in Thyatira. They, They don't repent. They don't get right with God. And there's repercussions. Well, the repercussions is Jesus throws him to a sickbed. Either this is a reference to pain and sickness, or this is a reference to death and hell. And death and hell are the final resting place for those who do not believe and repent. And the text says, I will strike her children dead. I don't believe this means physically. This means spiritually. The descendants of those who don't repent... Those who embrace this teaching of Jezebel, their kids fall off the, off the, the church bus altogether. Meaning the church might have the doors open, there might be butts in the pews, but spiritually speaking, the church is dead. Here's the application for us. There's a price to pay to be faithful to God. Why do I say that? Do you remember the, the trade guilds that were in Thyatira? I, I said how they're, they function like a labor union. They're kind of like a labor union, family business, and a religious cult all mixed into one. Well, not participating in the religion of Jezebel, that means you're not going to work. And I mentioned that the main deity is the, it was Apollo, the, the Greek sun god. Well, in order to hold a job or to run a family business, you had to be a member of those trade guilds. And if you're not a member of that trade guild, that means you're not going to work. If you don't get to work, you don't get to make money. If you don't make money, you're not going to be able to buy food. You don't buy food, then you're going to starve to death. Not only you, but your children as well. Remember, at this time, there's no social services. There's no welfare. There's no safety nets. There's no unemployment. There's no disability. There's no retirement benefits. You had to pay dues to these trade guilds. They would take care of you if there was a time in need. And each one of these trade guilds, false worship was a requirement. You had to go to these, these, in order to worship these deities, you had to go to what's called a love feast, which included eating meat that's sacrificed to idols and 
committing all sorts of sexual immorality we can't talk about here in mixed company. But here's the dilemma for the church in Thyatira. Do we engage or not to engage? Do we, do we not engage? And as a Christian, we forfeit our job. We forfeit our family business. We're going to be ostracized, marginalized, and persecuted because we held firm to our faith. Is that what we do? But wait a minute. There's a third option. Do you know what the third option is? You can have both. You don't have to pick and choose between being faithful to Jesus and having, or having comfort and convenience. There's an option number three. Well, the church in Thyatira, they signed up for option number three. It's where you get to worship on Jesus and, Jesus and you worship the false gods. You give money to the church and you give money to the trade guilds. It's about going to church on Sunday and hearing about sexual purity, but Monday through Saturday, you go in the world and you live however you want. It's wonderful. Love Jesus on Sunday and live like the devil the other days of the week. It's the best of all worlds. Why choose one when you can have both? And Jesus says, no. Now you're sitting there and you're wondering, what does this have to do with me? I'm so glad you asked. Maybe you're a student at our high school. Maybe you're a student in college. You take a stand for Jesus, it's going to affect your friendships. It may even affect your grades in school. Or maybe you're a middle manager at the, our local plant. And maybe you, you, you need to get a promotion. That means you have to lie, cheat, and steal to get it. Stay faithful to Jesus. It's going to talk, cost you your integrity. It may cost you to climb up the corporate ladder. Or maybe you're a senior executive at, a, at some place, and you have to, you're going to be a follower of Jesus. It's going to cost you your power. It's going to cost you your status, your influence at work. Maybe you're a salesperson, you go on business trips, and you go to the hotel bar, and you know there's going to be some drinking going on. Then after that, you know you're going to have to go to a place where Jesus says don't go, and you're going to have to participate in some things that Jesus says are very clearly wrong. Take a stand for Jesus. It's going to cost you your reputation, your friends, your money, your promotion, your job, your relationships. Or do you do what the child Thyra Tyra did? Pretend to be a Christian on Sunday. And live like Satan the other days of the week. Let me ask you this. Are you a tolerant person? Are you a tolerant Christian? This is a massive issue for Christianity and for the church. A man by the name of G.K. Chesterton, he said, Tolerance is a virtue of a man without convictions. Tolerance is an assumed virtue. So if you don't hold to an open, tolerant view, and if you don't embrace everything that Jesus said is wrong, today you are labeled as intolerant. You'll be labeled a bigoted, narrow-minded, discriminatory, prejudiced, outdated, primitive idiot. That's what people say about you. But we need to know there's different types of tolerance. There's legal tolerance. This is where everybody has the right to believe and worship the way they want to. Everyone is, is, is encouraged to have whatever beliefs they want to. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, all of them. Now, we don't agree with them, but we tolerate them. Should Christians have this type of tolerance? The answer is yes. Christianity is not a religion that can be imposed on anybody. It must be, you must willingly accept the fundamentals of the faith on your own. But then there's also social tolerance. That means where you have friends and family members and workers and neighbors that you disagree with. Should we tolerate them socially and personally? The answer is yes. They may disagree with this, but we tolerate their different views on important matters. The problem is so many 
people today are intolerant of tolerance because the new tolerance is very hypocritically intolerant of Christianity. They'll say things like, you know why I don't like Christianity? Because it's so very intolerant of other views. They're so restrictive. They'll say, my view is that all religions are equal and they all offer truth. That's the only tolerable religion. You see, the new tolerance is doing the very thing that Christianity is being accused of doing. It's religious gaslighting. That's what it is. And the bottom line is they're intolerant of any other view other than theirs. Every single person on the planet, it it holds some view that ultimately is intolerant. The question is, which one is right? What we should do as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should intentionally dialogue and have conversations with the exchanging of ideas and worldviews. What we should have, I'm calling theological tolerance. This is where we listen to others on spiritual matters, but the church sticks to orthodoxy. It's where we agree to disagree on secondary matters. We can agree to disagree on eschatology. That's that's end times. That's a secondary issue. But we do not bend on the primary issues like the deity of Christ and the means of salvation. What we can never allow, we can never allow this, is what I'm calling heretical tolerance. This is where someone claims to be a Christian and yet they allow heresy. Just tolerate false doctrine Just tolerate doctrine that leads people to hell. Encourage believing and thinking that leads people astray and straight to the bits of hell. No, we don't tolerate that. Immoral tolerance, that's the real issue with the church of Thyatira. They're tolerating sexual immorality. We need to know that believers that openly practice immoral tolerance, they might not even be believers at all. Why do I say that? Because Jesus says this. He says, I have this against you. He says that to the church of Thyatira. I want you to know that it is a sin to tolerate the things that Jesus does not tolerate. Jesus said to Thyatira, you're tolerating what I don't tolerate. And that's a sin. If we're faithful to what Jesus says, then we need to know that we're going to offend people. We're not to be offensive, but know that we will offend. Don't seek to be offensive. Don't be rude. Don't be hypocritical. Don't be self-righteous. We should speak truth, but speak truth in love. But when you speak truth, know what people are going to get offended. And I say that because the gospel is offensive. The gospel says you're not right with God. That God is holy and perfect and just, and we are not And then what's even more offensive, there's nothing you can do about it. No amount of being a good person is ever going to undo the wickedness of your past, present, or future. And you need to be saved. What we need is the grace of God. And by grace, I mean there's nothing you can do to earn his favor. But yet God freely gives it to whoever will accept it. And the truth is that's offensive. Let me ask you this question. Are Are you committing spiritual adultery? Verse 22, Jesus says, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into a great tribulation. We need to know there's two types of adultery. There's physical adultery and there's spiritual adultery. Physical adultery is exactly what you think it is. But spiritual adultery, that's where we're unfaithful to God. Spiritual adultery is a massive issue in the entire Bible. Ahab and Jezebel, they caused God's people to stumble and to whore after so-called gods. He, they encouraged spiritual adultery. 
In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. That Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. If a bride is disobedient and goes after other gods or idols, that's spiritual adultery. And yet God is holy. And in holiness, he calls his church, his bride, to be true faithful to him and him alone. He calls us to be holy. The church is supposed to be a community of believers that are to act different, look different than the world. The church is to resemble him in his character and his holiness. We are to be faithful and to not commit spiritual adultery. And Jesus here, he calls his bride to repent. Jesus, the groom, asked his bride, stop cheating on me. Come back to me. In verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Then verse 22, he says, I will throw her, throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. We need to know that Christianity, it's all about repentance. And coming to Jesus, it's about taking a step of repentance. And repentance is saying that I'm wrong and God is right. God is eternal. He is perfect. He's without beginning or end. In him, there is no defect. There's no sin. There's no problem. If there's anything wrong in this relationship, it's us. And we're the one that needs to change. Here is the root problem of this dilemma. It's one of authority. Who's going to be God? Who gets to call the shots? Does God get to call the shots or do we call the shots? And the truth is when we start calling the shots and doing things that God said is wrong with spiritual adultery, repentance begins with the assumption, if I disagree with God, then I'm the one that's wrong. There needs to be less about us changing the word of God and more about us obeying the word of God. But the word repentance, it also implies that grace and forgiveness has already been offered. And it has. And grace and forgiveness have been offered on the cross when God took on human flesh and he came and he died for sinners. And the truth is none of us can live up to God's perfect standard. God said, be perfect. And every single one of us fell short. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. That's why God came. And he paid the price that none of us can, can, can pay we need to realize that God does not love anybody because they follow the rules. That's not why God loves anybody. He loves us because of his perfect character. And he can continue to love us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But here's one thing I think it's, it, we need to know. Not everybody in the church at Thyatira was committing spiritual adultery. Read what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 verse 24. Jesus says, but to the rest of you, that's encouraging, in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned from what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Hold fast to what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Jesus said, hold fast, grab onto, cling on, hold tight until I come back. Very clearly, Jesus is saying, I'm coming back. Why should we not participate in, in the, the, the religion of Jezebel? Because Jesus is coming back. And then he says, keep my works until the end. I will give you authority over the nations. I can't even imagine what this possibly looks like. But in somehow in, the, in the, the kingdom to come, believers that don't bend are going to rule and reign with Jesus. Look what he says next in verse 27. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron as, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as myself have received authority from my father and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus is the morning star. What Jesus is saying, those who don't bend, those who don't cave, what you get is more Jesus. Look what Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 16. Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus says, those that don't, don't go down that road, you get more Jesus. And what is more valuable, what is more precious than Jesus? The answer is nothing. That's a rhetorical question. Jesus says, I can give you the greatest thing there is. What is better than sexual immorality, impurity, all this nonsense that was going down in the church at Thyatira? The answer is Jesus. If you repent and turn to him, that's what you get. And the truth is, those who, who give their life to Jesus, they get to spend eternity with Christ. But there must come this spiritual moment where you recognize your sinfulness and his purity and his holiness and his righteousness and how we fall woefully short. The Bible says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me, that's all of us. We've all fallen short. And the wage of sin is death, meaning we're all going to hell. But what did God do for lost sinners so that we don't have to go to hell? He sent Jesus. The Bible said, but yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. When I was at my worst, when I was so far from him, he still loved me. And he died for me. And the Bible gives the most clear, beautiful promises. Whoever calls on the, the, the Lord, they will be saved. Have you ever called on Jesus? Have you ever recognized your sinfulness? Turn from him and just cried out for him to forgiveness. If you've never done that, I would beg you to do that now. Say, dear God, I'm a sinner. But yet you love me despite of me. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I say this in the perfect name of Christ. Amen.